Welcome to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel, and for the last few uh, podcasts, we have been talking about a conviction review unit that is here in uh, Florida, um, and we have had the uh, state attorney as our guest, and now we are welcoming back the director, the executive director of that unit, Teresa Hall. Welcome, Teresa, to the program again. No, thank you so much. It's glad to be here. Good. All right. So today we want to kind of wrap things up um, about the uh, the unit itself, but maybe delve deeper into some of the reasons that um, contribute or some of the factors that contribute to someone going to prison, especially a case like Robert Dubois, a man who spent 37 years behind bars for a crime that he did not commit. And I, I would think that the uh, average person would say, well, how is that even possible? So there, there were factors in his case, and I wonder if you could uh, separate out those factors and explain in very specific detail what they are and how they contributed to his case, and then possibly go over his case from the beginning to the end for us, because you certainly know his case very, very well, I'm sure. Uh, sure. Uh, sure. As I mentioned uh, earlier, th there are some common causes that lead to, to wrongful convictions. Now, in Robert DeBoss' case, they weren't all of these that I'm mentioning, but there was more than one that led to his, his wrongful conviction. But some of the ones that don't go to Robert's case include false confessions. Mm -hmm. False, everybody, you know, I can talk to people that are strong-willed and independent lawyers, and they look at me and they go, how can anybody confess to a crime mm -hmm. they didn't commit? And unfortunately, the people that, that typically do confess to crimes they didn't commit are younger uh, individuals. They're typically maybe even teenagers. They're more submissive or they're a follower. They're not necessarily a real independent thinker. And they will bow to that peer pressure. And because the brain is not as developed in a teenager as, and science has completely shown this, they will bow to that peer pressure because all they want to do is get out of the this, this situation of being interrogated by two or three police detectives or people of authority. And so they'll say whatever they need to say to get out of the situation. And that has led to false confessions. I think right now we're staying at about 14% of the wrongful convictions have a false confession uh, embedded in them. Uh, other uh, causes include cross-racial misidentification. There are several psychological and sociological studies out there that show that people of one race don't typically make good identifications of another race. Uh, and that has led to uh, issues with, with, with misidentification. And then we've got, uh, leading into some of the ones that are related to Robert DeWa's case, uh, one is what I would call junk science. Uh, this is where, at some point, someone testified as an expert and basically gave their opinion on something that has not been scientifically proven at all. In Robert's case, it was bite mark evidence, and I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in just a few minutes when I talk about, because that is the crux of, of the wrongful conviction. 
-hmm. So junk science or science that is outdated and, and been found not to be reliable um, is a is a problem. Uh, air comparisons under a microscope is another one that's followed by the white side, um, where there are many people that had been uh, convicted based off of that kind of analysis, and now it's been determined that it's not really scientifically sound at all. Uh, and so that's that's an example. Um, we've also got issues with what we call prosecutorial misconduct or uh, law enforcement misconduct. And this is where you've got people that don't turn over the evidence that they're supposed to, or they really fall, uh, fall into that confirmation bias. And so they're convinced they've got the right guy and they don't look at other evidence that clearly proves they don't. They dismiss it because it doesn't fit with what they think. And that leads to wrongful convictions. And I believe that was part of the problem in Robert's case as well. Um, and then lastly, uh, we deal with, um, sometimes we deal with ineffective assistance of counsel from the defense attorney. Um, in Robert's case, I don't believe that that was the situation, but that does happen. Someone's just not very good at their defense, at, at being a defense attorney, and they don't present the evidence that really was staring them in the face to the jury, which could lead to, you know, which could lead to a wrongful conviction. And so those are some of the most common reasons. And as I said, I'll give some examples Oh, I'm sorry. The the last one is jailhouse informants. <laughs> I was just yeah. going to mention yeah. that. Thank right. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, jailhouse informants, which also was key in Robert's case. Mm -hmm. um, this is when I talk about a jailhouse informant. This is someone that's in jail for something completely not related to the murder. Let's say it's a murder investigation. They're in jail. Not re they're not related to that crime at all. But they share a cell with the guy that's been charged with murder, and then. There are now alleged conversations between the informant and the defendant who is charged with the murder where the defendant makes confessional statements. He says, well, the, you know, I did it, or he gives facts that show he did it. So then that jailhouse informant contacts the police and says, hey, man, give me a good deal on my case and I'll be a witness against this guy. So they're using, they're using the information they gained, if it's even truthful, they're using the information that's gained to try to get a better deal for themselves. Um, so they're saving their own skin, basically. And, and that is a real problem. Um, and we just finished creating a policy about uh, just urging attorneys not to necessarily use those kinds of informants. But if you do, there's a, a strict criteria that you have to go through to be able to use them. And, and shouldn't the jury know when a jailhouse snitch um, gets up on the stand, that that is where the information is coming from? Uh, absolutely. The jury should know that, but the jury should also know how many times has this guy done this? Mm -hmm. um, what has he received as the benefit? I mean, in Robert's case, for example, the jailhouse informant, he was facing two life sentences. And because of his testimony, he got 14 months in prison. Mm. Now, that's a huge incentive. If I were facing life, I'd think about lying, too. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and I think that's what happened. But when I, when I read about things like this, um, jailhouse snitches, and I, I've read so, about so many cases where they are a key factor, why is it that they are used in a trial? Well, um, that's hard. That's a little harder for me to answer because I won't. 
I won't use them. We took we took the policy when I was a homicide supervisor in Indianapolis that we would not use them. Um, I think some of the reasons that prosecutors will use them is because maybe their case isn't as strong as they wished it were. And now they've got this guy that's kind of handing them something on a platter. And so it's easy. I see. Um, I, I mean, that's I, I, I don't use them. I don't advocate to use them. When I was a homicide prosecutor, I would not use them. I would not file cases based off of them. And I would not use them at trial because I, I can tell you over 19 years, I've never seen anything really good come out of using one. And yet they are used often. Right? Yes. They are. All right. So now we, we went through all of those factors. Did did you mention, well, you, you mentioned uh, uh, cross-racial uh, identification. What about just witness misidentification? Is that a common factor? Well, sure, it absolutely can be. I mean, if you think about it, um, especially if it's a stranger that's hurting you or attacking you, you have never seen this person, they've got a gun in your face, or they're, or they're uh, sexually assaulting you. Um, you, you are already in a horribly traumatic event. And to then be able to recognize a stranger later in some kind of photo array is not always that easy to do. And if it is a cross-racial identification, that even makes it harder to do. Because how long did you have a chance to see the person's face? Were you concentrating on the weapon that was being used? Were you trying not to look in their face because he was raping you? I mean, that happens, you know, that happens a lot. Uh, you'll have women that'll say, I don't, I, I looked away because they didn't want to make eye contact with the person that was hurting them. And so you have to take all those factors into play if it's a stranger on stranger attack. Yeah, I hear you. All right, so Robert Dubois, Dubois case, um, can you kind of paint a picture of how, when, when this uh, began and uh, the, uh, the accusations against him uh, and, and what happened all, all the years that he was behind bars? Uh, sure. Uh, in 19, in August of 1983, a, a woman um, by the initials BG was attacked uh, as she was walking home at night. She was put behind a building, uh, brutally beaten to death with two by fours, beaten so bad that her face was completely disfigured. Mm -hmm. um, and she was uh, raped as well. And uh, when the autopsy occurred, the dentist, I'm sorry, the, uh, the doctor that performed the autopsy, he saw an injury on her left cheek that he thought was a human bite mark. They called in a regular dentist. He uh, took some pictures of photographs. And again, remember, 1983, they were Polaroids. That's how bad these photographs were. Took some photographs of the injury, and then the the doctor, the pathologist, took it upon himself to cut out the wound and put it in formaldehyde to preserve it. And because they thought that was a bite mark, they brought in an expert uh, that is called a forensic odontologist. He looked at the excised wound, said, I don't really know for sure exactly what this is. He looked at the photographs and he, was, he said, yes, this is a human bite mark. He taught the detectives 
how to take beeswax and have people bite down into the beeswax to get some kind of dental impression. He then uh, was given a, a bunch of dental impressions where these police officers basically just ask anybody on the street that lived in the neighborhood that was a man to bite into this beeswax. He then, out of about 100 of them, he said, oh, wait, this guy matches the bite mark, and it was Robert Dubois. Mm. That was the only evidence. That was it. Um, uh, and keeping in mind, in 1983, Ted Bundy was still fresh in, especially in Florida, still flat fresh in people's minds. And if you'll recall, a lot of the evidence where he was convicted, some of it was based on bite mark evidence. Matter of fact, it was the same forensic odontologist that testified in Ted Bundy's case that worked on Robert's case. Um, and so he was arrest Robert was arrested. He was uh, in jail. While he was in jail, a jailhouse informant uh, contacted the police and said that Robert had made incriminating statements that he had had sex with the girl, but he didn't kill her. And so at trial, the only evidence that was given to the jury was the bite mark evidence and then this jailhouse informant. And the jury convicted Robert of murder. Uh, at the time, it was a death. Uh, the jury found that he should serve life in prison. The judge took it upon himself to sentence him to death. Two years later, the Florida Supreme Court said, yeah, you can't do that, and changed the sentence to life in prison without parole. And uh, so then, then that's Robert was in prison. Fast forward all the way to, I, I'm not sure exactly when the Innocence, the National Innocence Project on the case, but mm -hmm. in February, no, in March, I'm going to get my dates mixed up, but I believe it was in March of 2019, I received some information from the National Innocence Project about looking into the case. No, I'm sorry, August. I think it was August of 20, 2019. And um, I began reviewing 3,000 pages worth of trial transcripts and depositions mm -hmm. and trying to learn everything I could about bite mark. I had studied a lot of it, but trying to learn everything I could. And a lot of times when there's bite mark, in, in these bite mark cases that have led to exonerations, one of the ways that they had exonerations is that they would just basically do DNA testing on the rape kit. Well, in 1983, there wasn't a such thing as DNA testing. They could blood type and match blood types, but there was nothing to really definitively say, hey, this DNA belongs to this person. Um, and to complicate the blood typing, Robert and the victim's blood were the same. Mm. And so you really couldn't, couldn't distinguish uh, between the two. But there was evidence that actually everybody wanted to seem to ignore that excluded Robert. Uh, the fingerprints found near the air conditioning units where the body was left excluded Robert. The hair samples collected off of the victim's body excluded Robert. No one saw Robert near the scene. No one could put the fact that Robert even knew this victim at all. So there, there was evidence that it, that, seemed to have been overlooked because I think they got so, they were so reliant on that bite mark evidence that it, that was their convincing factor. And I don't know what would have changed their minds back in 1983. Mm -hmm. 
incredible how weak the evidence really was. Uh, the snitch and the bite mark was at that time, I guess, bite marks were considered valid. But when when was it that uh, they have lost their their luster, so to speak, and people say uh, we, we cannot use a bite mark as as solid evidence? Yeah, I, I would say beginning in the mid 90s, maybe even mm -hmm. late 90s, the the, the American uh, Forensic Board of Odontology really started putting putting down guidelines and saying, hey, look, you know, that th this you can't say that this matches that this is definitively matches this person. Um, they tried to conduct studies to show that bite marks were an individual characteristic like fingerprints. And all of those studies showed that they were not. Um, and those studies went even as far as, in one of them, 100 experts, forensic odontologists, were given uh, photographs of injuries. And out of 30 out of 100, couldn't even uh, identify whether it was a bite mark or not, let alone that it belonged to somebody. And so I would say late 90s, that's where it started taking off. And then with the National Innocence Project and other innocence projects that are state-run, really started hammering your way at these convictions. And and we now are to the point that we just don't use that kind of evidence. Right. Well, Attorney Warren was saying that um, your unit is going to go back and look to see where there are cases of bite mark um, evidence and see if, if possibly uh, people can be exonerated as a result, since uh, it doesn't hold up. Be besides bite marks, what what else um, would you put under the category of junk science? Um, they used to do a lot of um, hair comparisons, where they would take a, a strand of hair from the crime scene and then a known hair, you know, like, it, like, in, like in Robert's case, they, they took his hair and they compared it to hair that they found on Barbara. Mm -hmm. And uh, some wrongful convictions have occurred. And the FBI really worked on this um, and overturned several convictions back in, I think, 2014. Uh, finding that just looking at two hairs under a microscope to see if they're the same hair is not scientifically sound. And so we just really don't do that anymore. I see. Yeah. Um, so with all the 3000 pages that you you had to look at what what in the world made up that huge file uh in his case uh, the uh the trial was extremely lengthy because of the the dentist and before the trial then there were depositions of every every witness that they had come on contact with because remember this was a a death penalty case so that right. it was it was very the defense attorneys did a marvelous job i mean they they didn't leave any any stone unturned back in 1983 the defense attorneys i couldn't have really done a better job than they did uh and so i had to read all of those trial transcripts and then i had to read any motions that were that were after the trial of course the police reports trying to piece together 1983 police reports took time and a lot of effort um, and as I mentioned, a lot of these bite mark cases have been exonerated because of DNA evidence. So when I started really delving into the case, I said to myself, well, I'm just going to go get 
the rape kit tested for DNA. Unfortunately, that was admitted at trial and the clerk's office, uh, because retention schedules and laws didn't exist then, destroyed all of the rape kits, we thought, in 1990. So we couldn't even go to the rape kits and say, let's just do DNA testing and see whose DNA sure, uh, sure. was there. And so then, uh, as we're continued, I wasn't going to give up. We continued to work on the case. I talked to just about anybody that would listen. I spoke to an old detective that was already retired, and he said, hey, did you check the medical examiner's office? Sometimes they kept their own rape kit slides. Oh, my. So we did, and they had them. And we immediately sent them off to a lab in California uh, because they said they would do the results within seven days. Uh, we sent them the rape kit slides. We sent them Robert's known DNA. They not only excluded Robert as being a contributor to any of the samples, but we also were able to identify the major contributor uh, through what's called CODIS, which is the national database where people's DNA is stored that are in jail. And and what? why is that a good thing, that um, CODIS? Well, if you think about it, I just peeled off a big Band-Aid off of this family from a conviction they thought were, was done from 1983. They thought their sister's murderer was in prison. Now I'm coming along going, hey, you know what? The bite mark evidence is junk. The jailhouse informant had a huge incentive to lie, and that wasn't disclosed to the defense like it should have been. Um, so we're going to let the guy go. Well, I did get, I did have to say that, but I also got to say, and we know who the guy that really did right. it is. Yeah, and that's certainly very helpful, right? It is. It is very helpful. What an incredible case. Um, I read the uh, whole case in the National Registry of Exonerations, and I encourage my listeners to go to that website. It's terrific. And any case of wrongful conviction is there. And they, they take you from the very beginning all the way to the very, very end. So uh, Dubois was the 172nd death row exoneree um, to be to be free. And when you think about how awful it would have been that they gave him the death sentence and that he was executed, uh, you know, it's too late after that. So yes. um, how, how wonderful a thing that you were able to free him. And so when did he actually walk out of prison after 37 years? Uh, we, we, because of COVID, we actually did it in two steps. We got mm -hmm. him out of prison on August, it was late August, I'm trying to think of. This year? Yeah, August of this year. It was late August. I don't remember the exact date. We got him out of prison first, and then on September 14th, we vacated his conviction and fully exonerated him. Oh, that's wonderful. Wonderful. What a, what a, a beautiful uh, feeling you must have um, that you were able to bring justice to a case of such horrible injustice. Well, Teresa, we, we are just about out of time. I'm so grateful you were here today to give us this um, look at, at what the Conviction Review Unit does and what they have done in, in, the, in the case of Robert Dubois. 
So uh, thank you so much for your time and your wonderful expertise. And I hope people really learned something today. Certainly I did. For, for our next podcast, I just wanted to mention we're going to be dealing with the issue of reentry. And we have two guests who have uh, nonprofits to help people coming out of prison. And I'm sure someone like uh, Robert Dubois is going to have a very difficult time in the world that he entered, so different from the world he, he left behind back in 1983. Yes. So um, I'm sure, I hope he has some support. Well, thank you again, Teresa, uh, for being here with us today. And uh, we hope our listeners will join us next time for Pursuing Justice. Thank you. Thank you.